All right, ready for some numbers. 85,000 in California, 300,000 in Texas, and 800,000 in Michigan. These are American homes and businesses that were without power and freezing temperatures up to a couple of weeks ago. Really, after World War II, it became the case that people assumed that electricity would be available if they had electrical service and were quite taken aback if it failed. And in fact, the very first major power outage that caught national attention, basically people were shocked. In fact, even the engineers, they were taken aback that the system they had grown and developed that they believed uh, was quite stable and had built-in redundancy fell to a, a small error. Um, I have a cousin who was on her way to meet somebody in an apartment building and she was stuck between floors on an elevator and her story. Um, How long was she stuck in the elevator for? You said power was out for 12 hours? I think she managed to climb. She was stuck between two floors and I think she managed somehow to, to get climb out and climb out. She was pregnant at the time. So I don't oh. think it's a very happy moment for her. <laughs> we have the 2003 blackout and finally Congress says, okay. Let's we got to do something about this. We got to do something. And in fact, at that time, the industry was ready for that to happen as well, because the nature of the industry had changed so much. Edison himself looked into other ways to do this, uh, but more famously, uh, George Westinghouse, yeah. with an alternative approach, he used inventions by people like Nikola Tesla mm -hmm. and others um, to design an automatic current system that could transmit electricity further and for multiple uses at the same time. Historically, it was extremely expensive and difficult to store electricity for any length of time in the form of a battery or say a pumped um, storage on the top of a mountain. And so unlike those other types of things I mentioned, um, there's a real art to sharing power on interconnected networks. It's now called area generation control. The equation is called the ACE equation, which means area control error, and it is still in use in operating rooms across interconnected systems around the world today. Did you know that the grid, by which we refer to our country's electric interconnection, is actually a misnomer? Because we don't have a grid. We have four grids, four major interconnections, one of which is Texas. I mention that because, like so many things, Texas Texas's interconnection is separate from the rest. Hey there, news peelers. Today is March 10, 2023, and this is Adele, the host of a History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both and let's get into it. What do you do when it gets cold? You turn on the heater. 
What do you do in freezing temperatures? You keep the heater on, maybe even turn it up. I can tell you this much, hundreds of thousands of Americans don't take this for granted because their homes and businesses lost power and they couldn't turn on their heaters. For example, residents of sunny Southern California had to contend with the snow and ice without power. 85,000 homes and businesses here where I live. In Michigan, more than 3,000 power lines and poles were down due to wind and snow. And according to the Wall Street Journal, the fallen power line situation was so dire that DTE Energy, Michigan's utility company, told people to stay out of their backyards for fear of getting electrocuted. In Texas, 150,000 customers in Austin alone, the state's capital, continue without power for days. Power outages were also reported in Illinois, New York, Oregon, and Wisconsin. A recent Wall Street Journal opinion by its editorial board, which we'll discuss in this episode, essentially warns that our power supply issues make it worse because we're scrapping fossil fuel power plants much faster than we're putting up renewable sources. By the way, not exactly on topic, but very related and very interesting, is that in our fight against climate change, more and more Americans are adopting green energy products, such as electric cars. And they're also updating their older electrical systems. But all of this needs electrification. And here's the rub. There are not enough electricians in our country to electrify America, especially in the Northeast and California, where demand for green energy products are the highest, which, by the way, has a lot to do with state incentives. And if you were wondering how many electricians we have in our country, according to the Wall Street Journal, it's 700,000. So, the unprecedented news of these power outages made me wonder, how unprecedented is this news? Have we had similar power outages in our history? And I guess I also have a broader question. How does our electric grid, or should I say electric grids, work anyway? Shouldn't this all be more efficient? I mean, America is a superpower. Why do we experience power outages? I know it sounds like a silly thing to say, but without power, we essentially, well, we essentially have no power. To get some answers to these questions, as well as to get the history of our electric grids, how they all got started, I spoke with Dr. Julie Cohn. She's a non-resident scholar at the Center for Energy Studies at the Baker Institute for Public Policy in Rice University, and also a research historian in the Center for Public History at University of Houston. She's the author of The Grid, a biography of an American technology, a 2017 book published by MIT Press, which we'll discuss in this episode. She's also written many research papers and policy briefs, such as Connecting Past and Future, A History of Texas's Isolated Power Grid. And here's another one, Power Systems on the Cusp of Fundamental Transformation from Spinning Machines to Power Electronics. To learn more about Dr. Cohn, you can visit her academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, Stay with me as Dr. Cohen and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Cohen, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Thousands of Americans have experienced power outages um, back in February and even in early March. Uh, so let's get some historical perspective on this. How does this compare to past? electrical power problems and disasters? Well, it's an interesting question because uh, 
The scale of power outages has increased over the last 150 years with the scale of our electrical systems. And in fact, in the very earliest days, it was pretty common for somebody who had electrical service to assume that it wasn't always going to work. Uh, but as service became more reliable and more available, people began relying on it more and more. And eventually, um, really after World War II, it became the case that people assumed that electricity would be available if they had electrical service and were quite taken aback if it failed. And in fact, the very first major power outage that caught national attention took place in 1965. Some of your listeners may recall the uh, giant Northeast blackout. It affected, um, I think, 12 states and wow. uh, the province of Ontario. Uh, millions of people were without power for about 12 to 15 hours. It took weeks to repair all of the pieces of equipment that were damaged. And basically, people were shocked. In fact, even the engineers, they were taken aback that the system they had grown and developed that they believed uh, was quite stable and had built-in redundancy fell to a, a small error. And in fact, what happened was um, somebody had left a relay on an older setting that was intended to protect the transmission of power from um, near Niagara up into Ontario, so that if too much power went onto these power lines, they it would be reversed so that they wouldn't be overloaded. The power lines were improved to the point where they could handle more power, but the relay setting had not changed. And so as electricity was flowing north toward uh, Northern Ontario, the relays flipped, the power went rushing back into New York State, and then a series of events followed. This is what's called a cascading power failure. Some of them had to do with um, smaller systems automatically switching themselves uh, off from the bigger network, and others had to do with system operators deciding that they could no longer support sharing power as the system was falling apart. It took several minutes, but eventually the whole Northeast, most or almost all of the Northeast was blacked out. Um, and this was a big shock to Americans. They simply didn't expect this to happen. Um, it's a shock to me as I listen to it. I just wanna, for, for clarification purposes, I wanna make sure, um, I don't recall reading about this event. So would you please tell me what season did this take place in? Yes, it was in early November, and it was a mild day, so people weren't terribly um, put out in terms of their climate comfort. Yeah. But it was in the early evening, and New York City went dark pretty quickly. Um, I have a cousin who was on her way to meet somebody in an apartment building, and she was stuck between floors on an elevator, and her story, <laughs> I mean, this, this happened to millions of people. Um, there are some great photos in, um, how long was she stuck in the elevator for? You said power was out for 12 hours. I think she managed to climb. She was stuck between two floors and I think she managed somehow to, to get climb out and then climb out. She was pregnant at the time. So I don't oh. think it's a very happy moment for her. <laughs> I have to correct to something I said. It was, I believe eight States in the, the province of Ontario. Uh, okay. Not, yeah. That's and, still pretty massive. Eight States yes, in the province massive. of, Yeah. Massive. And, um, you know, there are millions of great stories and upsetting stories about it. It wasn't a particularly tragic blackout. It was um, it caused enormous inconvenience for people. I'm sure the economic losses were huge, um, but it was really more the fact of the matter that this giant system 
could piece by piece, bit by bit, basically fall apart um, over the course of several minutes. And uh, You know, as you mentioned New York State, uh, the only thing that I do remember uh, from my readings of history, I don't, I don't recall it personally as a child, but didn't New York State itself had a famous blackout yes. uh, I, like in, in the 1970s or something am i go ahead please yes. yeah so so this was the first uh major cascading failure i believe anywhere in the world and it anywhere was in the world okay well, wow scale and it was on the largest interconnected system in the country at that mm-hmm. time um not long afterward there was actually an outage in texas a much smaller in scale but president johnson at the time was at his ranch and i think it was within a couple of weeks and he was not pleased to know that in his home state a similar problem could occur um and the next real there was another uh power failure that affected the pennsylvania new jersey maryland interconnection so three states two years later yeah about two years later and then the next really big power failure was 1977 and that was the new york blackout and it was in the summer it was hot um it was a time of social unrest that affected new york city and it was not fondly remembered because a lot of um, looting and damage within the city occurred in the wake. It was a very hot day. People had no electricity. Uh, there were already concern, you know, social issues upsetting people. And it was um, notorious for the negative activities that took place while the power was out. Um, remind me, uh, could you say the year again? Did you say 1977? Yes. Okay. In the summer. How long did did that blackout last? Well, again, I don't believe that one was very long. I I don't know that I don't recall the details. And in general, those kinds of power outages have historically not lasted a long time, but they've been so widespread and complete that they've caused enormous problems, despite the fact that you know they might last a day or a day and a half. The notorious, and I'm using your words here, the notorious yeah. blackout in New York City in 1977, was it? Was that just the five boroughs of the New York City? Oh, no, it was New York State. New it York State. The, yeah, it was I the see. entire system um, operated by Con Edison. Uh, and when you say notorious, I assume uh, crimes took place and all sorts of... Right. I don't believe there was a very, I don't believe there was much of a death toll, but I think there was, you know, one reported murder victim, but it was, um, there was widespread looting in the city. Yeah, sort of the memory that left uh, people with. Um, so yeah. any anything major since then? 1970s? Oh, yes. yes, there have been many blackouts. I think there have been let's say a dozen that affected 5 million or more people. And that includes the the um, the rolling power outages we had in Texas two years ago. Um, and the, you know, the other, I think the largest, the one that affected the largest number of people was in 2003 in effect. And again, it touched the, touched the uh, Northeastern states of the United States and um, was quite, quite problematic. But again, it was a cascading failure. There was a small incident. I believe it involved tree branches on a power line. Um, the power company, I believe it was in Ohio, had failed to trim the branches. It caused an a local outage that then cascaded across all of northeastern United States. And um, again, lasted probably about a day. Um, and there have been others. So 
This is not entirely unfamiliar to us, but I'd say overall power outages on that scale are relatively rare. We're talking about nearly 60 years since the first one, right? Yeah, since 1965. But since then, several have occurred, yes. um, including the largest in 2003 that you say impacted right. but millions. I make it, yeah, but I, I do want to make the point that there are different types, or I should say different reasons that these power outages occurred. And the big ones that I've described were all what we call a cascading failure, where there's something that happens in one very localized place, but it triggers a series of events across a large system that causes widespread outages. Um, different in kind are the blackouts that we experience, say, when there's a hurricane that hits a large area or some other type of weather event that causes lots of damage to usually the more local parts of the power network. So the, the power line you might see in your backyard, um, maybe some damage to a substations, more widespread damage, much longer timeline to repair the damage because there's so much, but it's not an operating failure. It's more um, the challenge of maintaining power lines in the face of high winds, um, heavy rain, ice storms, that sort of thing. So based on what you're describing about the latter type of uh, power outages, what happened uh, in Texas, California, Michigan, um, and several other states in February and early March, the power failures that left thousands in the cold. That was that falls in the second category. That's weather related. Certainly, the ones in Texas, which affected communities in Austin and Dallas, that was all about localized uh, damage to power infrastructure, not the big transmission network that sends electricity all across the state. Um, as far as the scale, how would this compare with all the examples that you've shared well, going back to 1965? Well, the recent outages in Texas are much smaller, hundreds of thousands of people as opposed to 5 million. So, wow. Yeah, of course. A much different scale of problem, but, but um, longer to fix because there were so many places where power lines are broken or, um, you know, a tree fell on a power line, that kind of thing. It takes much longer to repair that than, say, a problem that affects just one major piece of infrastructure. Yeah. And you think of, of some of the really horrific hurricanes like Katrina, where people were without power for weeks, or um, Ike in Houston, where people were without power for up to three weeks because it took so long for the local um, distribution company to get to every place where there was a um, something broken. So as you're describing the, the Katrina power outage, that's like a disaster upon a disaster. Not only they have to contend with the uh, hurricane and now they have to, and, and, and it's floods, they have to deal with power yeah. outage. Right. You were describing how um, sort of in passing how LBJ, President Johnson was in Texas when one of the power outages occurred, um, which made me wonder when these things occurred, especially when a president himself uh, witnesses this, were there political repercussions? Were there political follow-ups? Did things change or, uh, you know, what happened afterwards? <laughs> well, I, I, I would venture to guess there always are political repercussions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, specifically after, well, so let me give you a longer history about um, the power industry in the United States, because then it's easier to understand some of the political ramifications of that first big blackout in 1965. Um, in the United States, the majority of customers get their electricity from investor-owned companies, or did through all of the 20th century and much of the start of this century. So the private sector has had um, an enormous influence on the size, shape, operation of our electrical systems. At the same time, both state and federal governments have taken steps to try to be sure that customer interests are protected in systems that up until the 1990s were predominantly run by monopoly utilities. And um, monopoly of, utilities. Okay. Yes, okay. Yes. And all of the, um, the standards that had to do with keeping the system stable were implemented voluntarily by the power companies themselves. So they worked together to develop the standards and implemented them voluntarily, or at least most of them did. So when the 1965 blackout happened, um, at that moment, pretty much every state except Texas had regulation of the monopoly utilities within their state. The Federal Power Commission, which is now the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, um, regulated wholesale power transactions between states, but there was no federal entity that was responsible for the reliability of the power networks. That was in the hands of the power companies themselves. And I should be clear that some of those are were publicly owned, you know, municipal power companies or rural cooperatives or whatever, but still um, reliability was in the hands of those various entities. Mm -hmm. In the wake of the 1965 blackout, as you can imagine, there was a lot of consternation about our interconnected systems. A lot yeah. of had no idea that our electricity came from giant networks. There's a great quote uh, from the, immediately after that blackout from a Brooklyn housewife who said something along the lines of, well, you know, I didn't know that our electricity might be coming from Canada. I've never even been to Canada. What are they doing? Where does this come from? Yeah. <laughs> when people talked in the news about the grid, most people thought it was a football field. I mean, it just, the fact of our interconnected system and how our, how we were all connected with each other escaped most customers. And that, and after the power uh, failure, Many, including a lot of elected officials, asked the question, does this really make sense? Because if we're all interconnected and one little problem in one place can cascade into a failure that affects millions of us, maybe this isn't such a good thing. And so, in fact, there were a number of bills before Congress to put the federal government in charge of regulating reliability on the grid. And um, the power companies organized um, instead what was then called the uh, National Electricity Regulatory Commission, um, which- A commission, okay. In council, I'm sorry, council. I see. Um, which was a voluntary organization. It was made up of public and privately owned utilities. Government officials were allowed to attend the meetings. And the idea was to work together to ensure reliability across the country without federal oversight. 
Um, they had separate councils for different regions of the country so that they could address some of the geographic differences in um, power systems. But the idea was that they, the private sector, because they had throughout all of the 20th century up until that point, taken care of these things, they would continue to do so. And it wouldn't be necessary for Congress to pass a law that required the federal government to oversee this. It's kind of like, don't get involved. We got this, that sort yeah. of thing. Okay. I think, I think you could say that. And, yeah. and um, you know, in the defense of the power industry, most of the expertise resided in the universities and the private sector, not in the yeah. federal government. They just, it, there hadn't really been as big a role for federal agencies to develop that expertise. I mean, there were, there are federal agencies where it did exist, like the Tennessee Valley Authority or mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. uh, FDR time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the real, um, most of the real expertise resided in the private sector, in universities, at the manufacturers. And so to some degree, it made some sense for this sector of our nation to be responsible for figuring out the technical issues around reliability, at least at that time. Um, so fast forward to 2003 when we have our third major blackout that affects major parts of the northeastern part of the country. Um, and we've also had about 10 years of uh, restructuring of the industry through what we refer to as deregulation, although there are still regulatory roles of governments, but um, you know, the establishment of competitive power markets and um, the introduction of new power providers in the system. We have the 2003 blackout and finally Congress says, okay, we got to do something about this. We got to do something. And in fact, at that time, the industry was ready for that to happen as well because the nature of the industry had changed so much. So in 2005, Congress enacted um, a law that established the federal government and specifically the federal, federal Energy Regulatory Commission as the entity responsible for reliability on what is called the bulk power system. So that's, you know, the generators, the giant transmission lines you see along the highway to the substations, but not beyond the substations. The subst from the substation to the meter on your house, that's a local distribution company yeah. outside of that regulatory framework. So uh, after about a century, the federal government, our national government finally got involved. Yes, on, on this reliability matter. Yeah. And... Um, the law required the, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to identify what's called the Electricity Reliability Organization, or ERO, that would actually carry out the setting of reliability standards. So it's actually like an arm's length from this federal agency, and it's, it is the successor to that council I described earlier. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, and they actually are responsible for um, researching and um, defining reliability standards that are then adopted. Are they answerable to the federal government? Yes. Yeah. So FERC actually, you know, gives the final approval to the standards, but it's through through this ERO that they are promulgated. I see. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about when America's power grid that we've been talking about got started. We'll be right back. 
Did you know that a century ago, American civil engineers believed that building a bridge across the vastness of the Atlantic Ocean was in fact possible? In Season 1, Episode 33, I discussed the history of America's infrastructure with Dr. Henry Petrosky of Duke University, who has written more than 20 books on the subject and talked about it on BBC and PBS TV documentaries. I've included the link to my conversation with Dr. Petrosky in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Cohen. Dr. Cohn, you're the author of a 2017 book titled The Grit, Biography of an American Technology. Why don't you please tell us about this book? Be happy to. Um, this is a book that traces the development of the North American electric power systems, particularly the transmission networks um, that spread across our country, and takes a, a particular perspective on the development of those systems, and that is a technological one, because it was actually really hard to make interconnected power systems work without failure. Um, and that's hmm. because they uh, rely on alternating current, and alternating current is dynamic. And it's not like other things that are transmitted on networks, say water or messages or trains or cars. Um, you have to be able to use it immediately at the moment it arrives at your light switch or your light won't turn on. Um, the amount arriving at your light switch has to be appropriate for the item that's using the electricity. It has Otherwise, it'll blow up, right? Right. Or, yeah. or you'll just have a very low light. Yeah. Um, it historically was extremely expensive and difficult to store electricity for any length of time in the form of a battery or, say, a pumped um, storage on the top of a mountain. And so unlike those other types of things I mentioned, um, there's a real art to sharing power on interconnected networks. And... Uh, it was through the lens of the system operators and the challenges they faced in keeping the network stable that I examined how the power systems grew in our country, because I was really fascinated to understand how they figured it out. Um, and that, there's a personal story there, too, which we can talk about later if you'd like. Sure, definitely. So how did they grow? So, so and, and before you answer that question, so here you're talking about essentially the, uh, the ACDC problem here, right? Yes is, and is, no. I mean, is, in terms of the contents of my book, I don't really dwell on that at length. Uh -huh. It's covered by other storytellers and historians and it's in the movies and so on and so forth. Yeah. It's, part of the, it's an important part of the story. Um, in my book, the story really does begin with our friend Thomas Edison um, because, and this is not original to my research, others have covered this at length. Um, he developed the idea of a system that included a generator, power lines, and light bulbs that would all function together. And he demonstrated it in 1883, two, three. The 1880s, <laughs> okay. 1882 um, in New York, and it worked. And he was able to market it as a successful competitor to natural um, to gas lighting systems that many cities use to light their city streets. Um, 
There had been some other lighting systems on the market before that, in particular, the brush lighting system, which was an extremely bright type of light that um, almost like a glaring light that a lot of cities use to light their city streets, but you couldn't use it indoors because the light was too bright. Um, so the Edison bulb moderated that somewhat and uh, was it was useful both outdoors and indoors. So he, he introduced in the early 1880s, by 1890, there were a thousand Edison systems in use across the United States and many more around the world. His idea was you'd have a single generating station and you'd have transmission or district, you know, power lines that mm -hmm. carried electricity from there to the light bulbs that used it, or in some cases to motors or to, in other cases, to um, transit lines. And he used direct current power, which is something you referred to before. Yeah. The challenge to the Edison system was that you could not uh, cost-effectively transmit electricity more than about a mile from the generating station. There was too much loss on the power huh. line. We needed too big of a power line to get it from the generator to a further distance. So um, Edison himself looked into other ways to do this, uh, but more famously, uh, George Westinghouse yeah. With an alternative approach, he used inventions by people like Nikola Tesla mm -hmm. and others um, to design an automatic current system that could transmit electricity further and for multiple uses at the same time. So you could have one generating station that supplied power for lighting, for motors, for transit. You didn't have to have separate voltages and frequencies for each. That's so, simple, but it's ingenious. Well, I don't think it was particularly simple. To, to <laughs> well, I mean, it's the, the idea sounds yeah. simple to yeah. us now. Right. Um, so let's go back to the art to sharing power. So how yeah. did this all turn into a grid system? Well, once um, Westinghouse demonstrated his system, which actually was at a, the uh, Columbia Exposition, like a World's Fair in Chicago in 1893. And um, he got the contract to light up the World's Fair. And it was just a... There's some great photographs. If any of your listeners want to go online, they can Google um, Columbia and Exposition, Chicago, 1893, and these beautiful photos of old buildings lit up. And by the way, uh, PBS has a whole documentary on that. It's fascinating. Yeah. Mm. Um, but he demonstrated that you could do this, that, he, that you could successfully use alternating current to do all these things. And... Uh, other power companies took note. The next biggest installation was at Niagara Falls in the mid 1890s, and it worked. And so then power companies that were supplying power, for example, to mines in um, Colorado and Utah or to um, communities near the mountains in California, realized that they could transmit their power further. And they also realized, for example, if it was a hydroelectric company, that they could offset the challenges of the seasonal flow of their water resources by connecting with um, a company that used coal or gas, whatever they, they were able to, to obtain to burn for their fuel for their generators. They could share, share power when the river was high, they'd send it to the other company. When the water ran low, they could get power from the other type of generating service and they could transmit it across these longer distances. So that's when interconnection originated, when that opportunity presented itself to save some money by um, 
conserving coal and using hydroelectric power when it was available, and then offsetting the lack of hydroelectric power with coal-fired power when it was no longer available. Um, there were other reasons that company built these links. The second big reason was if, great example in Houston, if I, Houston Lighting and Power Company here built a large uh, generating facility on our Houston ship channel. This was in the early um, 1900s, but didn't have a particularly large market yet and needed to be able to sell the electricity generated by this plant to more customers. Oh, send it to another region. Oh, right. that's interesting. So they yeah. connected with a company to the east called Gulf, Gulf States Utilities that had customers in Texas and Louisiana. They sold them electricity from the generating plant. So you could achieve economies of scale that way. You could build a bigger market. You could build a more diverse market. Um, the individual probably best known for pulling this off was Samuel Insel, who developed the Chicago Edison Company and built it into one of the biggest holding companies in the country in the early part of the century. And he really understood the value of building big, diverse markets to maximize the use of his generating facilities. And then the third reason that people talk about the most today is um, by interconnecting, um, electric companies could access backup power without having to build extra generators or storage batteries at their own facilities. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, that might be, that would be not only for emergencies, but also planned maintenance. If you had to take down your generators to fix things or update them or clean them or whatever, you could access electricity from the neighboring company and your power customers wouldn't have to be without power. So, so here's a, a, a basic question. Perhaps I should have known this prior to starting my conversation with you in, 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 in this podcast, but I'll ask it anyway. How many electric grids do we have in America? Is that a silly question to ask, Dr. Cohn? No, not at all, because we talk about it as the grid. They're actually, yeah. Well, in North America, there are four major interconnections. Um, and if you can visualize, Texas has its own interconnection. Quebec has its own interconnection. And other than those two, um, in the continental United States and Canada, everything east of the Rocky Mountains is part of the eastern interconnection. And everything west of the Rocky Mountains, including a little bit of Mexico, is the western interconnection. So four big interconnections. So when you say interconnections, does that mean that uh, I live in California? At some point, conceivably, our power could come from northern Nevada or from Oregon? Yeah. Absolutely. Did this grid system occur by accident or did someone kind of sit down and say, okay, we're going to have the Western uh, grid. We're going to have the East. And why on God's earth is Texas separate onto itself? <laughs> it occurred organically. Organically. Uh, yes. Different power companies in different parts of the country built their interconnected systems. They grew over time. The, the largest one up until uh, the European interconnection overtook it in scale was the Eastern interconnection. And it began as a very small network in Western Pennsylvania and Ohio, and I think West Virginia. It eventually expanded all the way to the Rocky Mountains and East to the coast. Oh, wow. Yes. And then, uh, you know, part, parts of the 
country east of the Rocky Mountains remained separate for a long time, but eventually joined that giant interconnection when it became worthwhile to the companies within a network to be connected to the companies in the neighboring network. Yeah, and you shared the three reasons why companies uh, would want to link to one another. Um, in the minute we have left, I want to, of this segment, I want to go uh, and uh, to, to a recent paper uh, you wrote. Uh, the title is Connecting Past and Future, A History of Texas's Isolated Power Grid. Right. In the context of this paper, can you tell us why Texas is isolated? Uh, In the grid context, it's isolated in so many different <laughs> contexts. Well, we don't I need to go the, there. The shorthand version of that is that it was opportunistic, that for power companies within the state, they could achieve all the benefits of interconnection without having to undergo federal regulation. Um, and so, and because I, it doesn't go into interstate commerce, is that the correct. reason? Correct. Uh, how smart, so, <laughs> isn't it? So this um, clever. This evolved in the mid-century because the federal government, again, was a little late to the game. They didn't regulate interstate commerce until 1935. It was actually litigated in court for a few years after that. So let's let's say they really got off the ground in the late 1930s, close to the 1940, and until then the Companies like I mentioned, Houston Lighting and Power Company was interconnected with Gulf State Utilities, which had customers in Louisiana and Mississippi. Yeah. Once, but but remember, I also mentioned that Texas, unlike most other states, had no state regulation through yeah, most. Yeah, you said that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, late 1930s, early 40s, it was not really in the best interest of a utility like Houston Lighting and Power to continue sharing electricity to the east because they by then had a big customer base. They had enough customers for their power systems. They could get backup power from their neighbors to the west and north, and they didn't have to negotiate their rates at the state level or their interstate sales at the federal level. They were autonomous in that regard. Um, they had to negotiate with local governments, but not the, the other regulators. So it really, in my mind, was an opportunistic decision on the part of several large utilities in Texas to continue their operations within the state, to build their interconnections within the state, and for the long haul to avoid federal regulation. Let me see if I comprehend this correctly. So Texas's electric grid does not send electricity to any other state and does not receive it either. Hence, isolated and immune from federal regulation? It's not entirely correct. Okay. We do have direct current ties um, to the Eastern Interconnection and to Mexico. They're very small. Uh, they do provide, you know, economic power to, you know, cross state lines or help if somebody needs a little extra power um, on occasion, but because they're direct current and they're not in continuous interconnected operation, it's not considered um, an interconnection that is subject to federal regulation. There are some really interesting stories related to the isolated Texas grid, one called the Midnight Connection. <laughs> the Midnight Connection. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yes, he uh, surreptitiously linked the two grids. Surreptitiously linked the two grids. Interesting. We'll be back after a short break to talk about power grids of other countries and to ask the following question. Are we transitioning too quickly to renewable energy? 
We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Cohn, how different is our country's electric grid system than, let's say, I don't know, Canada, Germany? the UK, whichever example you like to share with our audience. I'd say um, Canada is probably more similar to the United States than other countries. And in part because um, the Dominion has multiple provinces and some of the regulatory relationships between provinces and the Dominion are quite similar to those between the states and the federal government here. And power systems developed in much the same way in Canada. Some were private, some were public. The private ones tended to be uh, more widespread. I guess Ontario had one of the biggest um, publicly owned power networks on on the North American continent for a long time. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, England was quite different. Um, At the beginning, there was enormous competition at the local level and I think virtually no regulation. So it was the case that in London, my house might get electricity on one little network and your house next door to me might get it on a different network and we would be on the same street. Sounds like the early days of the internet, right? Yes, (laughs) that that was uh, very early on in in England. Um, But during World War I, countries in Europe discovered that they really needed a lot of electricity to produce the new types of war machines that they were using. And um, in England, there were problems with consolidating electricity in the places where they needed it to for that production. So shortly after the end of World War I, Parliament actually established a national grid for England and uh, central control of that grid and central determination of where it would expand and how and so forth. So that's different in kind from the United States. And that was true of other countries in Europe as well. Looking more um, broadly across the globe, the variation is enormous. I mean, there's still large swaths of countries that do not have interconnected power networks and people rely on local generators to get electricity for their radios, to charge up the batteries on their phones, that kind of thing. Um, There are countries where it has been centralized from the get-go or at some point mid-century became, mid of last century became centralized. Russia has a highly centralized electrical system um, that developed under the USSR, Mm -hmm. contrast to ours, which was sort of a hodgepodge. Um, so yeah, and and in Japan, there there are two different frequencies, uh, fifty hertz in one part of the country and sixty hertz in another. How so, does that work? Uh, they don't try to share power across those two grids. Interesting. <laughs> so they might use DC connections, but um, yeah, but so the the variety across the globe is enormous, and the United States is distinct. 
um, for both the scale of interconnections that developed here early on and for a long time, really the being in the vanguard of how to operate interconnected systems. You say the United States is distinct in its scale and uh, many other facets of the electric system that we've developed over the, I guess, century and a half now almost. Um, we're also distinct in another way in that we are a superpower. Um, I guess China or Russia have claims to that now or in the past, but we still remain a superpower. Isn't it a bit weird? And I say this as a layperson, you're the expert here, but isn't it just a little daunting that we still have blackouts? I mean, it's electricity is fundamental. We can literally just devolve into the dark ages, I guess, pun intended here. I think um, it is daunting. I agree. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important to remember that most of the time, nearly 100% of the, what is it, 340 million customers who are connected to the four major grids in North America can turn on the light and turn the light switch and the lights go on. So most of the time it really works well. And that's not necessarily true in other places. The fact that- Like have, India, right? Yeah. Or- okay. uh, um, you know, smaller island nations that don't have consistent access to power, that kind of thing. Yeah. But it's an enormously complex system, and it is still subject to the vagaries of nature and weather. Um, so it's very difficult to achieve 100% reliability on a scale that we operate on and extremely expensive it would be extremely expensive to pull it off. All that said, I agree with you that it's um, it's a matter that requires continuous attention from the people who are technically knowledgeable about how to keep the system safe, who have political responsibility for the reliability standards for the uh, economic framework in which it operates. So I, I agree that it's of concern. But I think we should also bear in mind that over the last 20 years, the big blackouts that we've seen um, are have been of two types. One are the weather-related blackouts, like we talked about before, the hurricanes and so forth. And the other, like the big blackout that took place in Texas, was to some extent a controlled blackout that was um, undertaken to prevent a true power failure. Now, I would argue there were other types of failures at play that resulted in what we experienced in Texas, and it could have been prevented, um, had different both um, economic and regulatory systems been in place, but it wasn't a cascading power failure. It wasn't the result of a small error in one place cascading into a widespread blackout across the entire state. So, and I draw that distinction to suggest that on the technology side, we probably know how to keep things operating pretty darn well, mm -hmm. but there are still matters that can bring down the networks. The complexity, uh, at, some, at some level, it's a national security concern, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are, and you know, we haven't even talked about cybersecurity, which I don't, that's not my area of expertise. I don't have much. That's a whole different podcast in and of itself. Podcast, yeah. But yes. And sabotage, you know, straightforward. We heard about the shootings at a substation um, in the Southeast earlier or late last year that took down power for 
various communities nearby, you know, that's, that's not a matter of technical protection. That's yeah. straight on somebody who wanted to make things really tough for people went and shot out the substation. Yeah, that's a matter of security. But we can talk about, you know, we're not going to talk about cybersecurity, but one thing that I'm interested in talking about, and I think I shared with you in, in our prior communications, um, a Wall Street Journal um, editorial. It's, it's, it's by the editorial board uh, of the Wall Street Journal. And the article, I'll just sum it up. We don't need to have the article out. I'll, uh, the title, the headline of the article is SOS for the U.S. Electric Grid. Uh, and in it, uh, it basically um, warns that we are moving towards renewable energy too fast, that we're not putting up renewable energy sources as fast as we're scrapping uh, sort of older energy sources, such as fossil fuels or what have you. Um, what do you think? Is this all happening too quickly? Well, let me start by saying I'm a technology optimist. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've historically figured things out on the fly for the last 150 years as the grid grew and changed quickly. Um, but change is happening once again on an enormous scale. And um, it's hard to grapple with all of the different challenges that renewables present. I think some are familiar. Um, the most obvious one being that energy resources like wind and solar tend to be available in places far away from where people are using a lot of electricity. So we need more transmission infrastructure to move electricity from those sources to the users. Um, this has been a longstanding issue. It dates back to the beginning of the last century when people wanted to use falling water to generate electricity. And you can imagine, you know, a power plant somewhere in a mountain in the Rocky Mountains isn't necessarily going to be close to a lot of people who would use that electricity. Yeah, so, of course. Yeah, yeah. Right. So building transmission lines has long been an issue and, and is once again with respect to renewables. Um, a second issue which may be familiar to your listeners has to do with the intermittency of these new types of resources. Wind blows sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. The sun is out during the day, not at night. So while these resources um, provide lots of energy at certain times, there are other times when they don't. And so how they're connected to generating facilities that use different resources is an important question. Um, right now, we balance out the, the drop in wind or nighttime with hydrocarbon generated electricity or yeah. you know, hydroelectric plants. There are possibly ways to build networks where you could balance you know, sunny days with windy nights or sunny regions with cloudy regions. You know, those are all possibilities. But that becomes another grid in and of itself, right? right. But that's and, the, and again, that infrastructure isn't quite there yet. So intermittency is an issue that people grapple with and the grid operators are already grappling with. I mean, we do a pretty good job in Texas um, and we have more renewables than any other state and a higher in, intrusion of renewables into our grid. So it's an example that it does work. But, um, you know, if you have, let's say someday we have in the near future, 60, 80 percent of our power coming from wind and we know that there are times of the year when it's not as windy or times of the day when it's not as windy, we need some other resources to balance that. And some of those probably aren't going to be solar 
or went somewhere else. So that's an issue. Um, and then, uh, you know, the a third issue is that you can't titer the wind power and the solar power in the way you can hydroelectric power or coal-fired plants or gas-fired plants. And so they're basically, for the most part, either on or off. Now the technology is getting better, but it's not as, um, as controllable as those other resources are. And so this is what's called um, the dispatch problem because you can't say, okay, I need more solar right now. Solar plants, let's fire them up. <laughs> you can do that. Where's the sun? Where's the sun? Right, exactly. <laughs> So that, you know, there's the dispatch problem. Yeah. And then there's another problem, which probably, which is highly technical, but really important. And that is that traditionally the generators that we have on our power networks have spinning turbines. Solar panels aren't spinning and the way wind turbines spin is different. And so the interface between our generating resources of the past and the generating resources of the future is different in kind. And all of the control architecture of the grid is built around spinning turbines. So there's a whole big technical challenge ahead. Lots of people are working on it. There's a lot of optimism about being able to address it going forward, but it's still a challenge that, that has to be um, considered when looking ahead to a net zero future or a, overall just a greener future. How do you marry this? Uh... Uh, energy that's been generated from uh, green sources such as solar panels um, into uh, our current electric grid, which is based on turbine produced energy, right? And there, yeah, and it, and there are um, you know power electronic devices, essentially little computers that do that. Um, but the way all of the control activities on the grid work has to do with signals that the turbines give to the grid. And so the question is how will these, and, and there are thousands of spinning turbines. In the future, we're gonna have millions of these electronic devices interfacing between both the generating facilities and some of the um, customer facilities, electric cars, for example. And so how those are programmed to be uh, functional and reliable is still under investigation by a lot of scientists and engineers right now. And, and you're an optimist that technology will, uh, in the long run, solve the problem like it did with our electric grid. Uh, it's expanded, but it has its own problem, but it'll solve. Yeah, yeah I, think um, I do think it's solvable. And I, it's such an interesting problem. Lots of people really want to spend their time doing it. So that's a good thing. <laughs> and there's a lot of investment in it. Uh, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Cohn as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Cohn, how do we avoid blackouts? <laughs> Is that even possible everything, after everything we talked about here? Oh, I think um, there are ways to avoid certain kinds of blackouts. Probably the most expensive that won't happen is burying all our power lines. Um, burying? Burying 
Oh, burying. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay, so yeah. High winds, snowfall. Don't they do that in Europe? Well, lots of cities have buried power lines. Yeah. It's just the cost of taking everything that's overhead and putting it underground right now would be enormous. Yeah. Um, so we're to protect against weather-related events is going to be really tough. To protect against the squirrels that chew through transmission lines or whatever, you know, the people who go and shoot something up, that's going to be tough. I think on the technical side, there's plenty we can do. And especially on the regulatory side, um, you know, in Texas, the legislature took a number of steps to try to prevent that, the kind of outage we had two years ago from happening again. And there are probably more things that need to happen to assure that it doesn't happen, that we don't have a repeat. But there are, um, you know, those kinds of regulatory um, economic steps that we can take and technological to to harden the grid and make it more resilient. Resilient. Um, so a combination of uh, technology and a little bit of politics. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> politics always. <laughs> and there are, and there's the squirrels. Um, the squirrels. <laughs> uh, so we talked about the history of our grid and I want to switch a little bit and talk about another history. In preparing for our conversation, I read about your father's career. Yeah. Um, are there any stories from him about the history of America's electric grid that you want to share with us? And as I understand it, he passed on uh, yes. sometime. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, he was one of a number of engineers and inventors and operators who were really focused on the question of keeping interconnected systems operating and stable. And um, he and his colleagues were passionate about their work. He worked for a manufacturer. Some of the other people I met as a child worked for utilities or for you know, the Tennessee Valley Authority, whatever. Um, but across the board, whether they were on the profit-making side or the public sector side, they believed, I think, that they were making life better for Americans. And they were very dedicated to making these complex, um, difficult to understand networks safe and reliable. And he was actually um, responsible for uh, describing and explaining the, um, the algorithm that is used to this day to control frequency on the grid. Wow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he wasn't the only person who worked on it. Um, there were others who did. But in the late 1940s, most of the utilities adopted a particular control strategy. At the time, they called it, there's a long name that's really hard to follow, net interchange tie line bias control. <laughs> Say that um, 10 times. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in the 1950s, there was a lot of controversy over how exactly to implement it. Um, and what he and one of his colleagues, a guy named Spence Bloor, actually worked out the uh, theoretical underpinnings of how it worked and offered up the equation in various conferences and so forth. And the entire industry basically said, okay, yeah, we'll do it that way. Um, That's great. It's now called area generation control. The equation is called the ACE equation, which means area control error. And it is still in use in operating rooms across interconnected systems around the world today. So that's, that's, my a, contribution. that's a great story, Dr. Cohn. Uh, did, did your dad talk shop at home with you? 
he did a little bit. And of course, as a child, it was, <laughs> there was some eye glazing over. Yeah, yeah, yeah I bet. Response and I, there, I was the last of five kids and some of my family vacations were marked by visits to power control rooms, which <laughs> were not as exciting to me as they might've been to other people there. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but it was really later in life as I reflected back and thought about the work he had done that I realized, well, he just, he loved what he did. And yeah. He cared a lot about it and he wasn't alone. He was one of a whole cohort of people who felt the same way. And that's actually what drew me into this historical work was to try to understand, well, what, what were these questions that were unanswered for so long that it kept people engaged for half a century? Was he the, was he the inspiration for your book? In a sense, yeah. Yeah. One last question. If yeah. you wanted our audience to remember just one point about America's electric grid, what would it be? May I offer two points? <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Go ahead. Um, I guess the first is that I still think of electrification as an everyday miracle. Um, everyday miracle. An everyday miracle. The fact that every time I turn the switch on, except you know when something happened that went wrong, the light goes on, is sort of miraculous when you consider how many moving parts there are that get the electricity from a generator somewhere across who knows how many miles to my house. Um, and it's a miracle of cooperation because yeah. that's the only way it works. And I guess um, after the 2003 blackout, there was a utility executive who described the history of the power industry as the result of the work of a gaggle of entities. And gaggle so of entities. Point, that um, there was just, there was a gaggle <laughs> of <laughs> utilities, regulators, manufacturers, academics, customers, and so forth, who both competed and cooperated to bring about the power networks that we use today. And our future depends upon that mix of competition and collaboration to figure out what the heck we're gonna do to have enough electricity in the future. Those so are- I'd encourage your listeners to stay engaged and keep an eye out. Uh, for sure. Those are two great points, Dr. Cohn. Uh, thank you so very much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you very much. Thank you. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. 
and our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.